Um, all right, let's uh, let's get going. We got three books to talk about tonight: Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, and we're still in Second Corinthians. All right, we're not going to start on Isaiah tonight. We will have plenty of time in Isaiah. We'll spend the next few weeks in Isaiah, so we'll have plenty of times in Isaiah. Starting with Isaiah, one of the things I'll try to do each week, and y'all remind me to do this if I don't, is set it in context of when that prophet was prophesying on some of those timelines that we've talked about, who they were with, what was going on, that kind of thing, because that makes a big difference in understanding, and so that probably should have been done tonight, but we're not going to do that tonight, so you just make it through a week, and then we'll talk about it. I mean, you can tell some. Remember King Uzziah, because in Isaiah 6, it says that he's called uh, King Uzziah's death, so you've still got that chart of kings you can go back and look through some of that and see how it's playing out but all right tell me what you noticed questions you have in the book of ecclesiastes ecclesia we we last week we read all of ecclesiastes and all of song of solomon so we're going to ecclesiastes first which was last september 2nd we started it right yeah we're starting on september Second from last week. Here's my answer about that. I think for us to make that assumption is stepping too far. I think he's just in the natural progression. Um, what he's saying is in there, and we see this especially in our generation more than, is that you get a young guy and you put him on a pedestal, and then within five years they're looking for the next young man. And so it's better to be the young man than the old king but eventually that young man is going to be the old king and there'll be a new young man. Ecclesiastes, which is, we started on September 2nd and went to September 5th in Ecclesiastes. So anything in there in the Old Testament portion of the reading? Miss Teresa? Well, and what you also see is what we know to be true, that all the things that people strive for are not what makes you happy. And that's what Solomon realizes, that he's tried it all. I mean, you can have it all. I mean, we we live in a society when we see the downfall of people more than maybe we've ever seen it. Uh, we know more about people. We see their rise and fall. Uh, we hear of their discontent even in, um, you know, a story I've used over and over again was, was Tom Brady, who football season starts this week. Tom Brady considered to be one of the top two or three quarterbacks still in the world. At one time was three-time Super Bowl champ, almost led a perfect season, and they interviewed him on 60 Minutes after he won his third Super Bowl, and he said, I just still feel like something's missing. He had three Super Bowls. He was multi-multi-millionaire, well-loved, married to a supermodel, literally, had children, and he said he still felt something was missing. And that's Solomon. Solomon was on top of the world. And yet, none of that meant anything. Meaningless, yeah. It's his favorite word. Everything is meaningless. Anybody, anybody when we got to about chapter 3, start singing a song from the 60s there? Turn, 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 right? Is that all there is? Yeah. Any particular observations you like? Things that you like that he said or... He, somebody categorized it this way, said that he gives the obvious things that won't make us happy, the marginal things that won't make us happy, and the good things that won't make us happy. Now, happy may not be the right word. Contented, 
meaningful. But he says, listen, there's obvious things that aren't, you know. And then there are things that maybe you think they might, but they won't. And then there are good things that won't. He comes to the end of the book and he says, the only thing that makes you happy, the only thing that makes sense is to fear God and do what he commands. Yeah, well, you can tell he wrote both books, that's for sure, right? It does sound like Proverbs. Um, one of my favorite parts of this is uh, Solomon had to be older when he wrote this for a lot of reasons. But one, in chapter 12, he just describes at the beginning of that what it's like to grow older and miss think that I've missed something in life. And this feeling of regret. Now, he does it by saying, young man, don't do this. He says, remember your creator in the days of youth, before the days of trouble, uh, before the sun and light grow dark and the clouds return, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop and the grinders cease and those looking through the windows dim, when the doors are closed, when men rise up to the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. idea that you can't help but get up early in the morning and you can't hear as well as you used to hear. You're afraid of heights, danger in the streets, almond trees blossom, drag, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire no longer is stirred. Now that's from the NIV and the New Living's a little more. But just this idea that you need to learn. I wished I would have learned these lessons younger. Now how many times have you thought to yourself, man, I wish I would have known then what I know now, right? And you want to tell that to your kids and to your grandchildren, and they just won't. They won't listen, will they? I mean, they, they think you're just trying to punish them. Uh, I, I mentioned Sunday that we're looking at doing the Ten Commandments. We're going we're gonna to look at the Ten Commandments for ten weeks uh, on Sunday mornings. And I, I was doing something with Eli the other day and Luke. And Luke, Luke's our climber. And uh, Susan's birthday is today. And somebody brought her some Gigi's cupcakes. I don't know if you've had Gigi's, but they are huge cupcakes. And Luke wanted a cupcake. And we decided he would not go to bed till Saturday if he had one of those cupcakes. So we gave him half of one, right? So we cut it in half. And he he is jumping. He, he literally, about 30 minutes later, gets on the top of one of our chairs and jumps as far as he can out before I can get over there and stop him. And I said, no, Luke, don't do that. Well, why, Daddy? And all he can think in his mind is, Dad's keeping me from doing something fun. Well, in my mind, I'm keeping him from a cast. I'm keeping him from a hospital visit. I'm keeping him from pain, right? I'm trying to free him up to do things because if he falls and hurts something, he's going to be limited. I couldn't help but think that what Solomon is basically saying is, I'm trying to free you up by telling you not what not to do. Ten Commandments is kind of like God looking at us, and we're like, children, why can't I do that? God, well, I'm trying to give you freedom here, not limiting. And that's what Solomon's doing here. But, you know, wisdom doesn't often fall on the youth. Other observations, thing you saw in Ecclesiastes. No, it's, where is, where is it found? It's found in, you go Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Psalms, right? Those are all wisdom literature. The Bible is is the Old Testament is organized into into the Pentateuch, which is the first five books, the history books, 
the wisdom literature, the major prophets, and the minor prophets. And so you have these sections, and it is in this wisdom literature because it is, it's not a story. It's, these are lessons I've learned. It's almost like Solomon is saying, here are my life lessons that I'm going to pass on in a more condensed version than I did in Proverbs. Yes, Brenda. He doesn't identify himself as the teacher. But things that are said in there, evidences from history, are pretty sure it's Solomon. Um, there are. Here's my thing about that. One of the things about commentaries is I, I use them, I love them. But sometimes they argue for argument's sake. When most of the evidence points one way and they say, but they have, feel like they have to say, I mean, when I'm writing something for Ph.D. work, I have to include all perspectives. And so they have to include that. And some, I mean, there are people that don't think that, but there are people that don't think Matthew wrote Matthew and Mark wrote Mark and John wrote John. I mean, Solomon identifies himself in there and says, I, but there are those that think that, well, that they put their name in there. I mean, if, to say that he didn't write it would say that he interjected it in there to make it valid. David had a few, though. Yeah. No, I don't have any doubt at Solomon. I just, I don't have any doubt. Most people I respect don't have any doubt. He knew about risk and yield and all that, right? Yeah, we like to think we've invented a lot of stuff. There were a couple of, on September the 2nd, which is Ecclesiastes 1.18, I just thought for our generation how appropriate this is. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. I couldn't help but think about even, uh, you, you know, we, w- what has happened to soldiers in Iraq that have died has been tragic. That's never a good thing. But the number of casualties in Iraq over the 10-year period compared to other wars in the history of the United States has been relatively small. Each like it's precious, but we know about all of them now. Does that make sense? I mean, we... We hear instant updates. It's not like the Civil War where it was weeks before they knew how much, and by the time the news got around, you, you weren't inundated with it. You didn't turn on the TV, and every night you saw the fighting, and every day you heard reports, and uh, scandal after scandal, 24-hour news cycles. And I couldn't help but think that phrase, the more to increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Now, obviously, he's not telling us not to learn. But the point is there, the more wisdom he got, the more things he noticed that were wrong. His blessing became a curse unto him almost. All right? Um, On September the 3rd, a couple of things. This would be in chapter 4, verse 9 and following. One of the things that you see here in this little thing is that in this life that is meaningless, what is vitally important is close relationships. This is where he talks about two. If one falls down, the other can't get up. But if there are two there, they can stand back to back, or even better, or three, because the bond of three is not easily broken. Most people, when they hear that verse from Scripture, don't immediately know the context of Ecclesiastes. But the point of that is even more emphatic in Ecclesiastes when it says, everything in this life is meaningless. you got to have somebody to be with you in the midst of it. So you walk through it together. Um, on verse 10, uh, the, just in the reading, it's chapter 5, verse 10, but just across. Those who love money will never have enough. 
how meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. That's, that's true, right? I, was, I read an article recently about lottery winners and that depression rates in lottery winners is sky high. Now, they think that that ticket's going to win them what they need. And they all say, well, if I had a million dollars, I would give this and do that. But what happens is they get a million dollars and the leeches come out. And it turns into misery instead of joy. So, anyways, that was a couple of things I noticed. Uh, September the 5th, this be Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 4. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. If they watch every cloud, they never harvest. The idea that you've got to have perfect timing to take advantage of what God's called you to do, if you wait for the perfect circumstance, it will never happen. Uh, I grew up in an agricultural economy in Dyersburg and pastored in Ripley where they, they watch the weather all the time. But if they waited for a perfect day to plant, it'd be too late or too early or it wouldn't work. If they waited for no clouds to harvest, they wouldn't get it done. You just have to take initiative sometimes. All right? Anything else in Ecclesiastes? Well, you're in Song of Solomon now, I think. Maybe if it's Ecclesiastes 5, 7. Yeah, that's Song of Solomon. We're getting there real soon. All right, one last quote from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has lots of good quotes. This is Ecclesiastes right after that one about the farmers. said, Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, no matter how much science tells us, I do not understand a baby growing inside a mother's womb, how it comes from a single cell to Maddie, right? And a year and a half to a child that's crawling and can... Talk, not talk, but babble and hear and react. Just an amazing thing. You can't understand that. You cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. It's useless for us to try to figure it out, right? All right, let's go to Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Any wondering why this book had a little controversy getting in? Here's an interesting thing. The generation of pastors before me, never preached on Song of Solomon. How many of you in here have heard a sermon series on it? Anybody? I think in order to be a 34-year-old pastor, you have to preach on it these days. I looked at about five different churches that are all doing series on it right now. Now, the reason they're doing series on it is because they're telling people, you won't believe what's in the Bible. Song of Solomon competes. In its language, uh, I, I actually watched, and I couldn't get it. I was going to bring it in here and let you watch it. It was a preview for one of the series, and it had a guy that said, they've asked me to preview the Song of Solomon series. I'm going to read you some quotes. And he starts to read. He goes, wait, I cannot read that in church. You know, I mean, it's I can't read that. that is that what that means? And so it's interesting. Questions, observations. Well, she went out to try to find him. And when she got out, the, the impression given is that she goes out to entice him. And so she's dressed enticingly. And the night watchmen see her, 
and try to take advantage of her. That's what is implied there. That, that wasn't a good thing. She's just relaying it. But then finally, she is reunited with her lover. It is jarring, but it, and it's and it, and then it goes. But and what's jarring about it is it never comments on it really. It just kind of says it, and then it goes on. Well, here's what's happened next. So she well, you have to. It's not in chronological order. You have to remember. She is saying that she. That's when she's talking to the young women and saying, "Don't awaken love before it's time." And she talks about her young sister who's not ready yet, and which is there's that interesting thing. If she is chased, then we will encourage that. And if she's not, we're going to lock her up. Basically, what it says. And so she's saying that I. What she's basically saying was, I was that way. I was a virgin until I blossomed, and then when I blossomed, it was the right time, and I went to my lover. That's, but it's not in chronological order. She's not, because there are definitely moments before that when you would have to have a strange interpretation of the word virgin. It, there is some of that in there. Um, but And what is happening is she is telling this story. It's almost like the picture that a lot of people have is that they're telling this story to encourage these young women to wait. Because when you wait... And it's the right person at the right time in the right way. It is amazing. But if you don't, you can throw portions of that away. And so what they're doing is they're saying, this is how amazing it is. But you don't awaken love before it's time. That's the verse that's repeated several times in there. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, but that, that's, that's, the way, that's the way females... I mean, if, if a lady comes in and says, man, you have got to see this guy. He is unbelievable. Well, where is he? Let's see him. I mean, you know, I mean, that's how you react. I mean, it's not, you know, these are real people doing that. Deborah, do you have a question? What Do you tell me, why do you think it's in here? That's what Deborah wants to know. Why is Song of Solomon in the Bible? Okay, let's not with the commentaries. Let's just you. Why do you think it's in there? It's life. It is a beautifully written set of love poems. I mean, it is it is some of the best, stylistically, some of the best writing in all of the Bible. I mean, it, if you go by human standards of what beauty is and stylistically and poems and those kind of things, here's why I think it's in there, is to remind us that love and sex are beautiful gifts from God when used in the proper context and the proper relationship in the proper way. You, there, are, there are scholars that have been embarrassed by the book for years that come up with, it's an allegorical picture of Christ and the church. Well, you can do that in some places, but there are some places there ain't no allegory going on. It's not. It's... I mean, it's 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 scandalous at times. It's it's the kind of stuff that if you heard somebody reading it in modern language on TV, you would tell somebody, "Turn that. We don't need to be watching that." But what it is is it's saying that this is okay. It is good. It is right. It is of God. It was created by God, and we ought to enjoy it in its proper context, much like she says to the women of Jerusalem. 
Now, don't awaken it before it's time. Don't go outside of its bounds. But in its proper context, it is right. And don't feel guilty about it. That, that was just in their day and time. That, that was kind of how, they, that's what they did. I mean, if you, if you listen to modern love songs, even love songs that you could think about, they, uh, they, they will compare love to different, maybe not animals, but different things. They try to bring a comparison. Now, part of that comes from when there are emotions that are deep within the human soul, it's hard to convey that in words, and so we look for images or descriptions to do that. He just picked out the most beautiful animals and graceful animals and fruits and vegetables and talked about them. And, just to be perfectly honest, it prevented him from using, in certain places, words that wouldn't have been proper to use. It's interesting because this week we were reading this, or Couple of, there, there's a guy that I follow has a blog. His name is John Acuff. He grew up a Southern Baptist pastor's child, and he now writes for. He actually works for Dave Ramsey now, and he writes a blog as a part of that. And he was quoted on a story on CNN.com, and CNN.com the headline was "How Christians Ruin Sex." And it became the most popular story on CNN.com. And he says in there that we teach it based on guilt. And don't, like our youth, don't do it, don't do it. You'll feel guilty, you'll feel horrible, you'll feel terrible. Instead of teaching it like the Bible teaches with it, it's a beautiful gift of God that you only open when it's time. And so we make it into an evil thing. And he, one of his lines in there says, we somehow think God created it and then was surprised by how much people enjoyed it. Like it caught God off guard. He said, that's not the case. And we, in the way we talk about it and discuss it, now I realize that we, we're we working in a culture that's swimming in false understanding of it. That is, just has it everywhere and we are inundated with it and the natural reaction is to go into a shell. He says, that's the improper way. And Song of Solomon definitely doesn't shy away from those kind of issues. Um, it talks about them very openly and honestly. Other observations, questions. There's just some, I don't know. Part of the reason is because it's not all Solomon's. I mean, it's this, this young lady and the women. It's not him. It was originally called, I can't remember what it was originally called. I, I may, I'll look that up soon. Um, but Song of Songs is just kind of this. It's it's a psalm of psalms. It's a an extended collection of. It's not like like the Book of Psalms is a collection of individual songs, but they don't tell an overall story. This is a collection of individual songs that tell an overall story, and so it is a psalm of psalms, song of psalms. Well, I don't know. I don't know that they think there's any kind of collection. Um, there are some people that that describe it as kind of picking and choosing, but I think it's just the, some love notes between these two individuals. It's just I don't I don't know that song of songs means uh, uh, magnitude. So this is the greatest song of the songs. I think it means that this is a overall story of stories, an overall song of individual songs. But that wasn't on the original text. The original text had no title. It was just, you just started reading. There, there are those that have interpreted that way, Miss Rachel. I, I think that there are definitely elements that we can see 
I mean, God obviously compares our relationship in, uh, in the New Testament, particularly as the bride of Christ. He compares our relationship to a love relationship. But I think that it was originally written, not as an allegory, it was originally written as a set of love songs between two people. And so I'm not saying that there isn't an interpretation that can be laid over the top of that, but I think it is a very real description of passionate love between two people in the right way under God. So I I think that there can be double layers of meanings, but I think that it's primary originality came from being that. Yeah, he does there the pomegranate references and the climbing the palm tree references right after he says her body's like a palm tree. He's going to climb and grab the fruits. There's I mean that's hard to take much allegorically there. It's biblical. It's not that's not Lyle. That's biblical, right? But it, I mean, you can see why people avoid it sometimes from the pulpit. Uh, if I were going to do a series of Song of Solomon, nobody under a teenager would be in here. Because you can't discuss, for two reasons. One, you can't discuss some of the issues that are in Song of Solomon without discussing it at a level, and not, not in any kind of vulgar way, but you just have to discuss it at a level that Eli is not prepared for. Um, and... Just even with the youth, what you would have to guard against is the immaturity that might come from snickering and laughing when you talk about some of those things. But at the same time, I don't think that means that we avoid it. I also don't think we elevate a book of a few chapters into the book that everybody has to preach. You know, I don't think we elevate it that way, but I think it's a part of the counsel of God's Word that we talk about. And I think in. I won't shout. I preached a sermon on Song of Solomon. Y'all may not have known what was around it, but I preached that thing about seal it on my heart. I've done it at weddings. Uh, and so you, you, you pre, I don't avoid it, but it's, it is a, for a pastor, it's an interesting dilemma. Before I answer, let me read. It's her birthday. Oh, I looked at Ecclesiastes one night. I don't, that said something about getting old. I didn't need to do that on her birthday. Yes. My darling is a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. That is correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it sounds so much better when you said it like that, but you should have said it to Teresa, not to me. All right. Okay, good. All right. Anything else? In song? It's your last chance. We won't, hit it. we won't hit Song of Solomon again in our reading. This is it. Any questions? Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. All right. Let's talk about 2 Corinthians briefly. Now I'm going to let you go. We'll finish up 2 Corinthians next week, so we'll talk full details about that. But in particular discussions, starting on September the 2nd, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, all the way through today, which is 2 Corinthians 10:18. Any questions or thoughts in there? It's a little bit ambiguous there, but and even in the original language, the antecedent is a little ambiguous. Um, but my understanding of that is kind of, I'm going to kind of put them together. It is, thank God that he has given you the ability to give that allows for his gift to be made proclaimed. So it's kind of, I'm not so sure that Paul didn't make it where either one could be understood there for them to understand that your gift allowed the gift to come into people's lives. They're not, 
it's not really a, a separation. The, the idea, you know, he, Paul, Paul has written this bitter letter to them, and they have repented, and now he's saying, now we need some money. Now he's doing it in a very diplomatic way. Hey, we, we need to support these people, and when you support them, because Corinth would have been a thriving little community, even though it was, had wickedness all around, it was thriving with women of the wealthier areas, and you need to help your brothers and sisters out. And even I like how he says, and by the way, I've given you plenty of time to be ready. But just in case, I'm going to send a couple of people, and if you're not ready, get ready before I send the big group. Because I don't want the big group to get there, and you're not ready. I want you to be ready. So I like how Paul does that. But the point is, it's time to step up. You need to begin to... What, he, what he, I think is happening here is Paul... In 1 Corinthians, we have a very immature church. It's obvious that 1 Corinthians, they're immature. There's lots of stuff going on. I think by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, there's been some maturing. There's been some refining. There's been some repentance. And now Paul is saying, okay, the next step is for you to begin to give generously to people outside of your own congregation so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can be spread. And I think for us, it's an understanding that when you're as a congregation moved from that place of inward discussion to outward generosity, you have moved into steps of maturity. And so what's happening here is, as they, they had, because if you remember 1 Corinthians, there was very little concern from their end about what was going on outside of them. It was the speaking in tongues in church. It was the man who was with his stepmom. It was the Lord's Supper issues. It was the food sacrifice to idol. And in those issues, Paul would say, well, what are your non-believers going to think if they come into the assembly? What is this going to be? But he dealt with that in order, not just so they could take care of each other, but they might could move in generosity to helping other brothers and sisters and then helping others who would come to know Christ. So it's a progression, you see, even in these two books, of a church that's maturing in its faith communally. Other questions? All right, Psalms or Proverbs, anything there? All right, I'm going to let you go.